So here's something. Jesus is risen. If you've been here for our One Objection series, most of them ended on this point. Did you notice that? They were like, yeah, you can have all the questions in the world, but go to this point in history, because this is the one Christianity rises and falls on. This is the one that we are deeply assured in. Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. He came back to life. The body that was murdered, broken, asphyxiated to death on a cross, stabbed in the side so that water and blood poured out and buried for three days again, came to life again, breathed again, spoke again and lived again. What happens next? What happens next? Truth is this. Acts happens next. Acts happens next. Acts, the book that follows those four Gospels. Do you know, at its simplest, this book is historical, chronological, I got that, account of what happens next in the story of the church. It tells us what happens next to Jesus after he was raised from the dead and what happens next to his followers after they meet the risen Christ. If the Gospels cover the 30 or so years of Jesus' life on earth, telling us what he did, he taught, how he died and was resurrected, here Luke's purpose in writing Acts is to document the next 30 years or so of what happened after this in the life of the church. And as you would expect, it is a story full of wonder and worldview-changing truth. So it's a history, Acts is, the next 30 years or so. But it's also this. As well as being a history, Acts answers another question. The question of what happens next for those ordinary believers who come to know the risen Jesus. Anyone who comes to call themselves friend of God and followers of the risen Christ after they've been saved by faith. Believers like you and me. In this respect, Acts is a guidebook. It's a handbook, an instruction manual that explains what God wants and plans for his people, his church, after they have been saved. Phil Moore, who's speaking next week, says this. Acts gives, an, gives ordinary Christians his blueprint, a much-needed manual for their extraordinary God. Luke wrote Acts as the story of Christians in the past to encourage and equip ordinary Christians in the present. Listen, if your question is what happens next, now I'm a Christian, how should my life look different in light of this? What should I prioritise now according to him being my Lord? What should I leave behind? What should I seek out? And if that's never been explained to you, then this is a series for you. Do you know, our great prayer as an eldership is that as we look at this history and handbook, wherever there is a gap between our lives now and the blueprint and the manual of Acts, whether that be in mission, experience of the Spirit, reduction of poverty in our mists, 
understanding the greatness of God, like the believers in Acts, or passion and vision for the local church, that God would correct, would humble, would teach, and would change our lives. That that gap would be bridged and removed completely. And what comes next in our church story would look like everything God had planned in his church of Acts. That's our deep prayer as we look at this. Beautiful church, I am incredibly personally anticipant about this series and that we should look different at the end of it than we do at the beginning because if we don't, we've not preached it right to you. We've not spent time learning it right. We've not let the word seep in in the way that God wants it to. This history and handbook of Acts is such an important one for us to get hold of, to grasp, to understand. But Acts is also a massive book, truth be told. And it's a big preaching undertaking for us. Second highest in word count in the New Testament behind Luke's gospel. Man like to like to write and use words. Joint highest in numbers of chapters with Matthew 28. And as Luke's write this story, it is epic in scale. It's like a Shakespearean play that unfolds and ripples out before us. There are so many different scenes and locations to it. And he introduces a huge number of characters whose lives he weaves together in this great tapestry of what God did next. And for this reason, I just want to break down for you before we get going today uh, how we're going to tackle this book. We're going to break this book into three mini-series. The first one that we're going to embark on in a minute is Act, Act 1. It's going to be Act in three acts. Act 1, 1 to 8, local beginnings. This part of the book documents the first three years in Jerusalem, the same location where Jesus had been murdered, and how God formed the first local church in this area, what it looked like, what it did, and how his next step was building a living and breathing alternative temple of his Holy Spirit on earth. Then we're going to move on to Act 2, Cast Out, 8 to 16, which looks at God has to start, God starts casting his nets beyond the borders of Jerusalem, out into the surrounding countries, Samaria and Asia Minor, and what happens in the story as he does this. Then finally, we're going to come back to it again, and we're going to look at going viral, which is Macedonia to Rome, chapters 17 to 28, where we see what happens as the gospel starts to take root in the heart of the most dominant cultures of the day into Europe and landing in Rome. See, it's a huge book in scale. What we're going to do in between is intersperse them with different series, give, give us breaks, give it time for things to settle in. But this morning, just the rest of the time I've got today, I want to dive headlong with you into the first part of this, local beginnings, to start understanding together this central and important question for our faith. What happens next? Act one. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, which means friend of God, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. 
During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. He talk, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once, when he was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up in a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising to heaven, two white-robed men suddenly appeared among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Do you know on his 30th birthday, this fine upstanding gentleman here, Pete Cowcraft, who we all know and love so dearly, invited me to go mountain biking with him. Do you know, this was my favourite sport growing up as a kid in the countryside, so I was dead excited. And I remember on the way, we were talking it up so much, how fast we were going to go, how we were going to jump the jumps, how we were going to just enjoy it all day long, having a great laugh in the beautiful surroundings of North Wales. But when we got there, it was fair to say that it didn't quite go as expected, our great adventure day. On a very first run down the mountainside, this is not funny at all, actually, the guy in front of us, who had all the gear, that full-face helmet, full-sus bike, you know, the sort, but on our very first run down, he jumped badly, came off his mountain bike, and knocked himself out, and he swallowed his tongue and had to be airlifted off the mountainside. So my first experience in a good number of years mountain biking, was shooting as fast as I could down this downhill track, absolutely terrified to try and get to somebody at the bottom to tell them about what had happened up top to this poor guy. And if I remember rightly, I think it was Neil who ran back up to the top to tell somebody on a walkie-talkie, and Pete tried to say they're keeping people from crashing into this gentleman whilst trying to remove his tongue from his throat again. Do you know, it was all okay, thankfully, on this day. And we had a great rest of our day eventually, but there was definitely a a tinge of fear for the rest of this day. A heightened awareness of the consequences of doing something wrong, making a mistake. And it was all because the day had started in such a shocking and jarring and unexpected way. You know, the truth is that if you really take note of what is happening in these 11 verses at the beginning of Acts, that kickstarts this book, what happens next is far more shocking and unexpected than a guy swallowing his tongue on a mountainside. And it's actually a place where Jesus reshapes all of his disciples' expectation for what life should 
and would look like going forward. If we look at the text a bit more, actually it all starts kind of normally, as you would expect. Jesus came back to life after suffering and dying on the cross. And for the next 40 days or so, he simply picks up where he's left off. We read he's eating with people here, spending time with his apostles, giving instructions, moving in the Holy Spirit, and picking up on his favorite theme of teaching about how God's kingdom works and had come. And all this activity leads to a really natural question in verse 6 here. Lord, has the time come for you to free and restore Israel, our kingdom? Is now the time it's going to come? And this is a question that most people in the culture would have asked from the proven Messiah. Because it remained their cultural expectation over what the Messiah, King David's heir and true descendant, would do. That he would physically take over the rule of Israel, God's kingdom, on earth, and lead the nation to victory and greater influence over all the nation around. Bringing God's peace, culture, justice to others, expanding what had happened in King David and Solomon's time and seeing it fulfilled. So they asked, Lord, is now the time that you're going to renew Israel's fortunes? By the might of heaven, throw off the shackles of Rome that oppress the people and the dead lifeless religion that's come to govern them. Is now that time you're going to bring your kingdom? And to be honest, this is probably the, the question that I would have asked from a different perspective, and even without that Jewish expectation. Jesus, you're, you're back from the dead. You're munching on your tuna sandwich. You're chatting to me. I can see clearly you are alive. Is now the time my heart has been longing for? where you go and take down all the pretenders to the throne, where you're going to roll out God's kingdom across the land to do great miracles and to destroy evil, bringing his great peace on earth, as you promised you would via the nation of Israel. Surely the next thing you are going to do is to put yourself on display in the temple and courts before those who killed you unjustly, And show them, like us, the holes in your hands, the wounds in your side, and give them the greatest I told you so history has ever known. Hey guys, look, you murdered me, but I'm clearly the Messiah. I'm back from the dead. Convince them like you convinced us. But in this brief bit of text here that I've read this morning, Jesus blows this expectation totally apart. He completely destroys any notion that this is what is coming next for the apostles in a couple of really conclusive ways. Firstly, in verse 1, verse, in one verse 7, he says, I, I don't want you to know the dates when I will finally take charge of everything. Full knowledge of that is not what comes next. I want you to trust that all has been fixed by God. That's not to be your primary expectation and concern right now. Then, in verse 9, he just ups and leaves. He goes away. Granted, in an amazing way, he's taken up on a cloud. But he's gone up and out of their sight. He's left, nonetheless. Pretty suddenly, by the sounds of it, as well. Then, leaving the disciples, just stood there, lost for words, gazing upwards. Suddenly, two white-robed men appear beside them and ask what sounds, to my mind, like a really ridiculous question. Men of Galilee, why do you just stand there staring into heaven? Uh, mate, it's pretty obvious, because the bloke that I was chatting to a second ago 
that I've invested my whole life in, who rose from the dead, who left us once and I was expecting would lead us now, just a minute ago got taken up to heaven on a cloud. When was the last time you saw that happen? I'm staring into heaven. But the men who are here persist with some really comforting but powerful words. Why do you stand there? Jesus, who was taken up to heaven, will come back the same way. He's going to come back on the clouds and kingdoms, kings and kingdoms will bow down as the song goes. It's going to be part of heaven's story. Don't worry about it. I mean, the implication of what this comforting angel is saying is clear. Yes, that was amazing. But just being a people who wait for him to come back physically and take the reins of everything is not what he has for you right now. It's not what comes next. It's not the next thing that you should expect from the unfolding story of God in his story. This will happen, but leave that bit to God. You have something else to focus on now. So if this shouldn't be their expectation, what should it be? when Jesus left them? Did he leave them with an idea of what to do, what was coming next, what they should look for, what they should expect? Absolutely. Do you know where some parts of the Bible remain challenging and unclear? I don't think this is one of them. Jesus spelled out the next stage of his plan so clearly here in these 11 verses. Just look at these two places. Firstly, in 1, 4 to 5, we read, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you heard from me. For John the Baptist, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized, totally immersed in the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. And again, in 1.8, he says this, in the most quoted verse in Acts, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When you put these two verses together, the disciples were told clearly to expect the following, that he was going to do something remarkable to them in Jerusalem, and that they needed to wait around for it. Namely, that he was going to baptise which means to immerse, to pour out, to cover, to overwhelm, to douse them completely in the same Holy Spirit that had raised Jesus from the dead and by which Jesus started and conducted his ministry. God's evident, his manifest, his felt spirit and presence on earth. And that when he did this, Rather than showing his power and witness through his physical self, the disciples would come to display his power and witness. They would be the evidence and the proof themselves that he was risen, alive, and was God incarnate who died for the sins of the world. Jesus clearly says that what you should expect next, my disciples, is that I'm going to turn you into a community that is saturated with the very Spirit of God. I will fill you with that same power that is at work in me to overcome even death so that you become my very witnesses, the witnesses of my life, my death, the fact that I am raised from the dead. 
throughout this world. Church, just a note on becoming witnesses here. This word's important one. Do you know, a clear witness is not just a weak thing. Someone who saw something happen. It is an incredibly powerful thing. It's the very proof that is used in a court of law to determine truth, to make a judgment, and to convict a criminal. Clear witnesses equal clear proof. Just as an unclear witness, grey on the details, equals unclear proof. And it is clear that in this verses, he's not talking about his church becoming an unclear witness. Jesus here is saying, what you should expect next is this, that my people will become my proof, my clear proof, because of my presence among them. First locally where you are now, then rippling out from that. Importantly here, guys, this is not just a last minute head-wrecking change in God's plan. He didn't just decide this after he was risen, ah, oh, we're going to do it this way now to distress and confound his disciples. He'd actually prepared his friends for this part of his plan before his ministry even started. It's just that they hadn't truly uprooted their cultural expectations to align with what he taught them yet. There was a cultural stronghold, if you like, of an entrenched expectation in the way that God would work that had not come down yet. A bit of their thinking that had not easily been transformed on this matter. In verse 5, he links it back to John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus' ministry before he started. Before he'd even spoken or got going, before the Holy Spirit had even come to anoint his ministry. Pointing back to this, that right at the beginning of the, the Gospels, John said, I baptise you with water for repentance, but he is coming after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, and he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And Jesus, if you look at his teaching throughout the Gospels, taught explicitly and repeatedly that they should expect that this is what he would do. He taught that he would go and be seen by the world no more. But he taught that he, when he did this, he would not leave his followers as orphans. Instead, he would send them the Holy Spirit to help, to convict, to remind, to clarify, to bring to truth and peace, bring peace to the world and see greater miracles than Jesus did. That because of the Spirit, we would glorify God like Jesus did as his people. This is the whole drive of Jesus' great teaching in John 14 and 15, those two chapters. The reality is that Jesus had prepared his disciples for the day of his leaving, for the moment that we've read about today. And he prepared them for a day when they would become the proof community by the Holy Spirit. It's just until up until the point he actually goes, his teaching doesn't fully land with them for some reason. They still haven't fully shaken off that old cultural expectation about how the Messiah was going to do this new kingdom thing. But here, 
their expectation and their gaze changes. As Jesus goes up to heaven, the penny finally drops for them. Ah, the Holy Spirit, the baptism plan. That is what he's going to do next. He's gone. And if we look on briefly in chapter one, I'm not going to read it all now. I'll leave some for Barry's studies notes. We read this. After Jesus went up to heaven, the apostles did this. They returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. And they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Here it's, you see that they just, after seeing and hearing this, they respond with just a simple obedient trusting. They go back to Jerusalem. They do what he's asked. And they get praying. They get waiting and seeking God for this great promise that he's brought. And then they get on, if we read on here, with preparations of a new type for what God was going to do next. So what happens next? This is what happened next. This is it. This is what Jesus did next after he was risen from the dead. This was his next bit of teaching. This was the next bit of his plan unfolding. This is the next bit of the church history of which we're now a part. How is it then a blueprint for us, what we've just read? How does this impact and lead to shaping us today? Do you know, the Bible is amazingly rich, even in these few verses, actually. I mean, even in those last few verses that I've skipped over this morning, we can see that obedience and prayer should be right at the heart of what we do as a church. But these passages also teach us that one day the risen Jesus will come back physically and majestically as the true king of all. And like it says in Isaiah, all the pretenders, all the idols, all the things we believe in, we've given power to, put authority in that are not of him, all the things that we think are beautiful, when we see him, when he comes back, they will be cast low compared to his glory and his majesty and might. We get to look forward to that. We do. But for now, and most importantly this morning, Jesus' plan for his people has not changed. He has risen and will come back. We're going to rejoice in this, expect it. But he doesn't want us to live our lives fixated on it. Just huddled up, gazing into heaven and waiting for the great I told you so which is coming in God's timing. Instead, he wants us to become his people of proof because of God's presence. First locally, where we are now, then rippling out from that to the surrounding cities, cultures, countries, and continents of the world. What comes next following faith in Jesus, following his atoning death, that lifts us up from the muck and the mire and washes and cleanses our insides, is that he wants us to make us individually and collectively a dwelling place for his very spirit and person. The holiest of holies is now his people, not just in a little side kind of way, but in a big, baptised, immersed, doused, covered sort of way. This is what God wants to happen next as his believers. This is what Jesus ordained in history to happen next. 
Interestingly though, when hearing this, I think too often we can be like the disciples. I know I can too often be like the disciples who were taught this repeatedly like by Jesus as they walked with him, yet still hadn't allowed the words, word to reshape their lives and their cultural expectations. I think like them, we can have a big cultural stronghold, a fortified strong set of beliefs that we don't want to give up our position on, that is resistant to being transformed by his word here when it comes to the idea of being a community baptised in the spirit, being God's plan A. Despite it being there plain as day, the walls don't easily come down on this one for us, no matter how many times we're hit with the truth. Because in our culture, we have faith in the material, scepticism over the spiritual. Faith in the seen, scepticism over the unseen. Faith in our daily experience and culture, scepticism over the promises of the word. So in our churches, sometimes we can bench the spirit rather than recognising he's the coach, he's the star player, and that we're a mess without him. Listen, I would hazard a guess this morning, if I might, that most of you have been Christians and faithfully walked with Jesus, loved and pursued him for some time. This would not be the first time that you have heard about the Holy Spirit and that he wants to flood your life with his Spirit's power to turn you into that people of proof. But the truth is he does. He does. That is what he wants to do in your life. That's what he wants to do this morning. He wants to flood your life with the power of his spirit. He wants to give you the gift of his very presence in and amongst you. Church, uh, right the way through church history, there are times and places in history where the church chose to take him at his word on this matter and saw the stronghold of scepticism break down and to allow him afresh to fill, cover, and baptise them in his manifest presence. People like Smith Wigglesworth, who in the early 1900s desperately wanted to see tongues in his life, so he went to a church in Sunderland where he heard this was happening. And as he searched, he was challenged by the vicar's wife there, Miss Body. It was not tongues he needed, but the baptism in God's spirit that he had to offer. Miss Body then prayed for him, simply, and he saw, and he described this as so, suddenly being bathed in the power and glory of the Lord and seeing a vision of the empty cross, Jesus exalted at the right hand of the Father, he was overwhelmed. Straight afterwards, Smith Wigglesworth went to the church where Red Body was speaking that night, interrupted his preach and said, can I speak on the baptism of the Holy Spirit? When he finished, he saw 50 people glorious, ba gloriously baptised in the Spirit and speaking in other tongues. This event was reported on, which was unusual at the time, by the local newspaper, the Sunderland Daily Echo. I'm sure you all read that. Which gave detailed accounts of his experience and of the people speaking in tongues and of the healings that occurred following it. God wants to pour out his Spirit. Smith grasped this at that time. Do you know, more recently, Alan Scott, and probably more excitingly, I think, actually, 
Alan Scott documents the story of how his whole church body that he was leading at the time, Causeway Coast Vineyard in Northern Ireland, in his book Scattered, Scattered Servants, embraced this truth about God's plan being the Holy Spirit come to make them a people of proof. And he writes this, Do you know, the church at large has limited God's ability. Believers enter the most environments without expecting intervention from God. We have embraced a theology more akin to determinism than deliverance. We have been crushed by disappointment rather than overwhelmed by wonder. And in general, the expectation of God's supernatural power has been abandoned. If not abandoned, reserved for specific places and times. And in his book, he describes as the church as a whole move away from this damaged theology and expectation and begin to trust God's word on the Holy Spirit, not just the leaders or some super spiritual few, but the congregation, Christ's beloved bride, started to see story after story of his power come into their lives and those around them as they became witnesses and proof. Just one which is echoed with me because of our friend Chrissy B, who's about to have this surgery next week, but this happened. Edna had only been given a few months to live. That's not like Chrissy B, by the way. Don't want to scare you. He's going to do fine. Like many who show up on our streets to be prayed for, she had been bought by a concerned family member. As the team talked to her, they discovered she had a rare form of cancer affecting her bladder and liver, and that she was scheduled to have an operation in the coming days. The team, as they always do, just prayed their best prayer that they could for her. But it wasn't until a few weeks later that they heard what happened next. Edna was admitted to hospital as planned. The operation was scheduled to last eight hours and involve five teams of surgeons. After anaesthetizing Edna, however, the surgeon made the necessary incision in her body only to discover that the cancer had completely disappeared. Completely disappeared. Edna's story, he writes, is a wonderful, but increasingly common story amongst us. In the last few years, we have been hearing increasing reports of cancer being healed. Church, I've, I hope I've managed to communicate this this morning. I always find the Holy Spirit one of the hardest things to communicate, really, in God's planning it. It's not quite as tangible as an idea where I can be like, right, live like this. It's on God. He wants to come. He wants to move. This whole book that we're looking at, this whole book, this whole journey that we are about to go on, starts with the Holy Spirit making his people a people of proof. Phil's going to come and he's going to talk about Pentecost next week. And although I don't want to steal his thunder because we're going to be praying for it next week, but I, I've got a feeling we're going to be praying for this a lot over the next few weeks if we're truly serious about about being shaped by the word. I do feel like there is something, something of skepticism in our culture to the thing of the spirit, that if we want to live up to our name and our calling here, particularly as Freedom Church, to bring God's freedom to people, that we need to begin to be shaped and allow that wall to come down collectively. This isn't just about one or two being, uh, he's particularly gifted in prophecy, he's got a gift of healing. This is about a church being the church that God designed, being the people that God designed. He has washed you clean. He has cleaned you out. That's what the cross 
was about. Why? To make you a temple, to cleanse you, to make you ready for being a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, that he might overflow from us and people would see his glory as clear witnesses. That's his plan A. 